Hello, hello, Bright Souls. I am so, so excited for today's episode. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to How to Be a Better Person. I am here today with Dr. Michelle Fenneran for my first actual ever podcast interview. Thank you so much for coming on. Hi, Natasha. Thank you for having me. Yes, I'm so excited that you could be here. So uh, Dr. Finneran is a licensed professional counselor in Florida, and she has also recently published a book on surviving domestic abuse, which if you guys have been following along with my podcast and you know my journey, obviously you know that I definitely appreciate and resonate with the information that you provided in this book. So um, thank you so much for writing it. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what inspired you to put the book together? Absolutely. So um, when I was in my um, PhD program at, at Nova Southeastern University, I um, was working at that time at a local jail. And what I what I found working with, I was working with incarcerated female inmates, and they were, um, it was in, it was doing group sessions about anger management, domestic violence, and um, conflict resolution. Um, and what I would found doing these these groups, they were educational groups, but I got a chance really to to really speak a lot to the the group members one on one. And what I was finding out that many of many of the incarcerated women were actually victims of domestic abuse that were arrested um, due to an due to uh, law enforcement being called out to a domestic dispute. And I was finding more and more of this, and it was absolutely to me like. Uh, like I, I found it very awkward and distur- a little disturbing. And I, I had a conversation with my dissertation chair and I, I talked to her about the, this, what was happening. And um, like, uh, I wasn't understanding why it was happening. And she asked me to go back, go into the academic literature and see kind of what kind of support. It's like, uh, what, what is out there for domestic violence? survivors right. or victims and there wasn't a whole back at that time there wasn't a whole lot of of resources so I took on a beast of a project yeah and what like- I what I did was is I looked at you know systems I looked at three sections I looked at the barriers for um, domestic violence survivors um, and victims seeking help um, and I looked at the formal supports which we talk about law enforcement mental health providers clergy, uh, medical staff, judicial systems, and, uh, you know, meaning attorneys and, and judges. And then we looked at um, informal supports, meaning family, relatives, friends, coworkers, and supervisors, and bosses, and employers. Um, so we looked at all those elements and uh, came up with some really interest- interesting discoveries. Yeah. Um, the, the book actually has, um, because I transcribed it actually, because I interviewed the survivors right. um, that were once victims, um, they, um, they uh, participated in this, in the study, and there's actually quotes in the book of, from directly from what they're saying. So it was just the, the, the process of how it unfolded. I, it was part of, it was my dissertation um, my dissertation in, in, in my PhD program. And then I just couldn't let it go. And I felt like this was too much, this is too good of information that kind of just let it just slip by. It needs to be published. And I I got I found an academic publishing company, Rutledge Taylor and Francis Group, to actually publish it. And it, it's on Amazon and it's on Rutledge Taylor and Francis. And it's 
it's been out since it's been it's been out for about a for about a little over a year now. Right, right. I actually have a copy right <laughs> here. Um, I notice you have so many interviews. Can you tell me what it was like? I mean, it must have been very intense to go through that process. I mean, honestly, Natasha, I have never experienced. I mean, I, I, I do psychotherapy. I do, you know, I'm a, I'm a mental health counselor, so I have um, sessions all the time with my clients. It's what I do every day, back to back. But these interviews were very different. They were very they were very, um, there were 90 minute interviews, straight interviews. And the challenging part was figuring out how to get participants, how to get people to step up and admit that they had been a survivor, not a victim. I wasn't interviewing victims. I was interviewing survivors. How to, how, how is going to get that, how is it going to get this population? So I realized after sitting on the idea for two months that it wasn't, they were going to come to me. Like I need to like go to them, you know? Right. So what I did was I contracted with a couple community mental health centers around. I contacted with a local um, DV um, center in our area. I contacted um, a, a victim's advocate um, law enforcement agency. Um, and I contacted a sexual assault um, treatment facility mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the local area. And I, I contracted with these five five, five places. And I was able to work with the agencies to facilitate, um, participation. So that was one thing. And another thing was I was featured in a local magazine, um, that, um, the feature was about me and my business, but about what I was, the project that I was doing, which invited more advertising. Right. And then I just, then I just, you know, I just, real I just went to like local area like local places of uh, Starbucks my flyer on the bulletin board I went to like a I went to like a, a coffee shop you know on the back of the back just very like kind of advertising um, in different places just different different places different places different ways um not really knowing how I didn't really wasn't really active on social media so it didn't really facilitate that way sure but yeah, people, um, people started, people started calling. I started making appointments. I had a space, I had an office space because I was a clinician still back then. And I, tra I recorded uh, everything had to go through an, ins an institutional review board an IRB, oh, wow. which is, which is very, it's very strict with, with colleges. You got to make sure that it's ethical, that you're not going to do harm to your participants and if there is harm, what are you going to do about it? Like, so there's no legalities. Yeah. So I really nailed down a, a plan, really um, making sure that these interviews were safe and sound and cathartic, really, for um, the survivors. And it turned out to be, for me, at least, and for them, it was for them telling the story um, was just like, I you know, the best gift that they could, could have and just being a part of this project. And then me hearing it on the other end was these 90 minute increments of just like, it's not the same as doing like a 55 minute session. It's just a very different process with very, you know, structured um, questions and then follow-up questions based on their responses. It was just, it's just a very, there were, it's very semi, it's a very, it was a semi-structured qualitative study. So it was just very interesting. And the, the most interesting part is not just transcribing the interviews, 
but actually looking at the saturation of data that what popped out in the interviews that a lot of the women said pretty much some things the same, very, very similar to this essay, the same thing. So that was very interesting. And some discoveries about their interviews came about that I was not really aware of, which was also uh, interesting to uh, understand new data that you didn't anticipate. Right, right. Gosh, that sounds like such an overwhelmingly intense, but really beautiful process. I appreciate how much you put into making sure the experience for them was, was cathartic, you know? Oh, I, yes, absolutely. I, I made sure that I was, you know, as a therapist and a counselor, there's a certain way that you need to be and to make people feel comfortable. And I didn't want to do anything to make anybody feel uncomfortable or, or bring trauma, re-traumatize um, the, 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 the survivors. So I was very careful with how I phrased things. I was careful with how I worded things. And it was, it was the, you know, the, the, the gift that they gave was providing research and information, yeah. you know? So, you know, it's interesting afterwards when I, when I um, got all the results and I got the dissertation um, published and got graduated, I actually called a few of the survivors um, back um, and I did like a focus group. Um, with them to kind of let them know about the results and let them know the findings and and how intricate their interviews were in, in developing this so absolutely yeah so you mentioned that there was um, quite a process that you had to go to to be able to do these interviews um, do you feel like you met with any resistance from people or difficulties being able to get this process going there wasn't a whole lot of there wasn't a whole lot of red tape, you know, in the dissertation process. And the reason why is because I have at Nova Southeastern had a really really amazing dissertation chair. Her name is Dr. Judith McKay. She has been she was my she has been my mentor throughout the whole scope of my academic career and thereafter. And she she thought of everything. She thought of everything of any obstacles that might come up, any you know anything that might be barriers. She um, and we, we sat, uh, many of, um, IHOP sessions, <laughs> uh, and dinners, um, going over them, recracking things. And she had a lot of faith in me. And I, I, I love the way she works and I love the things that she does and how she operates. And I have a lot of respect for her. And it was just a really, really great working relationship. Mm, that's awesome. I'm so glad. Yeah, I think it's important when you are engaged in a project that you have people to look up to and mentors to kind of go to, you know, it's so interesting because Natasha, after I graduated, you know, I got the PhD I worked so hard for, and I, I, I called her up, I said, okay, so what do we do now? She's like, well, you work. I'm like, what's the world? And make it She's like, fly away, Michelle. I'm like, what are you doing? No. That's so funny. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I wasn't expecting, like, she's like, you teach, you, you write, you, you counsel, like you practice, you, you're an academic. So, yeah. um, I wasn't excited. That was a huge transition because when you're in school, it's so structured and absolutely, you know, it's very like, you know, you, especially when you're in residential classes, you have, you have the structure of the teachers when your dissertation, it's a little bit less structured and you kind of have to do your own kind of thing. 
uh, and, and make a game plan. But when you're graduated, so you're like, you, there's nothing else to do. Yeah. Fly away, little bird. <laughs> That's so funny. Well, clearly you did. You're doing amazing. So it was, uh, it was, it was a little bit, I was like, a, I was, I got a little bit slightly depressed, you know, I'm not gonna lie. I did because yeah, you work for something, you work at something so hard for so long and then you've achieved it and there's nothing more to do. I mean, the, it, it would, it's like anticlimactic, I guess you could say it. it's like a great, you would feel that way. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But it seems like you've been doing a lot since then. So, uh, you know, yeah. hopefully, hopefully you feel fulfilled in all of that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's been the, the writing, the writing has been a new discovery for me. And once, once you, I feel like once I published the book, now I, now I have an itch. Now I, now I can't, I can't stop itching now. And so I want to, I want to create more stuff. So it's, this is a good thing. It's a good, it's a good thing to have. I definitely resonate with that itch to create. Yes. Yes. Can you, um, let's talk about a little bit more about the information that you were able to uncover doing those interviews. Mm -hmm. So you said that you, you noticed that the girls said a lot of the same things. And so I'm curious as to like, what that looks like and you know what being an abusive relationship looks like what they went through through that process of of it being in the relationship and also healing from the relationship yeah uh, a lot of a lot of um a lot of um uh domestic violence victims not to discount the survivors but they they didn't really realize that they were involved in a, an abusive dynamic until um it became almost like a life-threatening situation like they didn't really I, I i they didn't really understand or have the models or the teachings or the the role models or the examples to know that this is they knew something was wrong though i have to i have to say that i don't want to ever discredit the, the survivors, they knew something was wrong. They, they, and so with knowing something that was wrong, a lot of them, what a lot of them did is they did their own pulmonary research. They went on chats and forums and they participated in support groups and they would just listen and they would, they would rest these support groups or these, these, these lectures would resonate with them and saying, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I'm going, like, they would educate themselves on their own because they knew something was wasn't right. They couldn't really pinpoint exactly what it was or what they knew they didn't feel comfortable. Right. So they taught themselves through these these forums. And then what happens then they start to a lot of people, a lot of the survivors started to talk to their friends. And a lot of their friends recommended, you know, I, you know, I can't help you to this, I can only help you to this point. Why don't you think about seeing somebody professionally to get some counseling? And a lot of them, a lot of them did. A lot of them saw, saw counselors, um, which was just great. Uh, the problem that a lot of the survivors had with the counselors is, and a lot of counselors do this, is they have their own kind of agenda as to wanting the, the victim or survivor to get to a point of safety, obviously. Um, and and develop a safety plan and to get them out of the relationship. That's that was really that's a lot of the therapist's goals. That's really just the, the survivor that was going through the counselor or the victim that was going through the counseling really needed to process what they were going through probably for the first time. So it was a very 
that wasn't really permitted, you know, like the, the you know, it's like, what, when are you going to get over this kind of thing? Like, so the processing was not happening in the counseling session. And a lot of survivors, uh, victims at the time were not ready to leave. Right. They weren't ready to leave. They weren't at, the, at that point. And the counselors really were pushing the, their agenda on them. You know, and I feel like if you're working with domestic, if you're working with anybody who's dealing with trauma, you have to kind of meet them with where they're at. Yes. You know, you can't just expedite the process for them. They have to, you have to go according to them. So that's a lot of the problems that mental health counselors found. And in the book I have for each sphere that in terms of formal and informal supports, I put recommendations down for the service providers to understand on how to really talk, um, how to really treat, how to really, um, you know, speak to uh, the victim population. A lot of, another thing that was eye-opening is a lot of the survivors had a lot of the same things to say about law enforcement not being empathetic or having sensitivity training, yes. um, needing sensitivity training, and it's particularly um, wanting a lot of the, the female survivors wanted um, a female law enforcement officer out there to comfort them and just be consoling, you know? Right. Um, and, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I recommend for law enforcement to have, when, when a dispatch calls, to have both a male and a, and a female to be dispatched so, um, right. so they can have that comfortability there. Um, but not, not knowing, like the, the law enforcement really wasn't really knowing how to treat a victim because typically they don't, they, they've been known to treat criminals, you know, not, not victims. So it's a, it's a different, it's a different attack that you have to go into. Absolutely. And I resonate with a lot of this information specifically because in my personal experience, uh, when I was in an abusive relationship, it is, you feel a sense of like something's off, but it's like little red flags. And yes. you're kind of thinking, maybe we can work through this. Maybe this will go away. Maybe if I express how I feel, this will change. And so you, mm. you're willing to kind of, to work through certain things until it gets to a place where you're like, oh no, I'm in too deep and I'm trapped. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it becomes to the point where it's either I, I have to get out or I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to live another day kind of thing. Absolutely. And that's exactly where I was. I specifically remember my best friend telling me like, if I didn't get you out of there, you were going to die. And yeah you know, going to your point about law enforcement, um, when I was trying to remove myself from the situation, it was, it was intense. You know, I had to file a police report. And when I was speaking with the lady in regards to receiving a protective order, she, despite the fact that I had a police report, I had evidence, I had threats from this person that he was going to shoot up my home and poison my dogs. I mean, these, those are not threats that you would think someone in law enforcement would take lightly. And yet I'm having her tell me, okay, well, we talked to him and he said, he's not going to do anything. So unless he actually goes forward with any of those things, we cannot grant you a protective order. Right. What? <laughs> I know. I know. That's, that's why, that's why, you know, it's a very reactive system. It's a very reactive system. So, you know, a, 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 a don't, don't call unless you, you have a mark or you've been hit kind of thing. You know, it's just, it's just a very, it's a very flawed system. And that's why I even wrote the book because what I, I was in, I was working in the system and I saw 
my God, what is going on around me? This is like nuts. Like, so I, I identified uh, through the survivors interviews, what was really flawed according to them and their, their feedback and their information, their input was viable yes. to, to this book. And I think uh, trying to get the book in people's hands, um, victims hands, survivors hands, even you know, even formal and informal support stance, anybody who's dealing with anybody who's is, is in an abusive, a domestic abusive relationship, I, I feel that this is an important avenue for the whole population, not just as an academic book, but it's just not, it's not meant just for academic and colleges. It's, it's meant for people as a way to kind of help themselves and, and be better in terms of a, a formally and informally how to go about helping those who need the help. Absolutely. As you said, it is definitely a very reactive system. And so I think that this book definitely kind of tries to branch into the supportive and preventative side yes. of that. And so I definitely appreciate that. Absolutely. Well, I try, I try to really nail down in each, each, each support individually, formally and informally, the recommendations that need to take place in order to improve the system and perfect it a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so when we're talking about being supportive to someone who is struggling and in a domestic violent relationship, um, what would you say would be the best way to support them or also the best way not to support them? What's unhelpful? Yeah. I find that what's really not helpful, and this is going to sound kind of off, um, is what's not helpful for the survivor or the victim is to bash the perpetrator verbally. Mm. That's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> that's not helpful at all for, for the Maybe what you want to do, it's not helpful. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. That, of course, that's where people go. That's yeah. people want to do, but that's not, that's not helpful. That's right. not helpful for the victim or the, or the survivor. That's not helpful for them. Because right. what it does, it just Stockholm syndrome. Yeah, yeah. Well, what it does, it just reinforces. Well, I've made some bad mistakes in my life, and I'm a, kind of a. It makes them feel like a lot of people felt, a lot of survivors felt like, you know, they felt badly that they were. There's, yeah, it does go right into the Stockholm syndrome, and one of the things that I talk about the Stockholm syndrome, is the need to protect your perpetrator. Yeah. That's a very real thing. It's and that's, that, yeah, it's an emotional bonding still there. And so that's why law enforcement officers, those calls are so dangerous for law enforcement officers, because what ends up happening is the law enforcement officer comes out to the scene, investigates, right. finds, finds foul and arrests the perpetrator you know, and meanwhile, the victim is now attacking the police officer because of that emotional bond and that fear of retaliation or, you know, you know, it's just, so that's why it's, it's hard to, to be, a, it's really hard to be a law enforcement officer right now in today's day and age anyway, but yeah. that's why these, these calls are so volatile because of just of that. And it's, it's understanding, it's having law enforcement really get educated, understand why victims do that and why and why it's it's they they actually are the ones who are calling for assistance but then they're attacking the law enforcement officers because 
of that emotional, the traumatic emotional bonding that takes place there between the perpetrator and the victim. Right. And to your point earlier regarding um, the therapist who wants to expedite and remove the person from the situation, it's definitely not as instant as a process, you know, like they're at that point that they're probably calling law enforcement, it's still going to be some time before they're in a place where their ducks are in a row and they're really ready to leave, I think. Well, and there has to be, a, a, it's a process. I think it's a process that just doesn't happen overnight. Okay. And a, a therapist that develops a safety plan with their, with their client slash um, victim has to put everything in place um, because the point of leaving for the victim is the most dangerous point absolutely in, in the whole scheme of things you know absolutely. your life is at risk in that moment just as much as it was when you were with the person um, even, even 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 more so because now you're gone they don't have the control they're going they're going to try to come after you and that's that's where you're you have to really protect yourself and get a really tight net safety plan and a team of people, not just therapists, but a team of people that can, that can help the situation. Absolutely. Because then you're put into a situation like I was where not only does the person know where I live, he knows where my parents live. He knows where all my friends are. He knows where I work. He knows where I go to school. I, I can completely see why survivors are in that situation where they don't want to leave because they're afraid of what's going to follow. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely, and it just—it just seems, even though they're at risk, it just seems just a little bit more, um, you know, safer or secure to, to be there versus not there and having the uncertainty of and you know looking over your shoulder kind of mentality, you know, and that happens. That's I mean, that's that's a real that's a real fear, and it's it's a real thing that survivors. And, you know, even survivors that have been out of domestic violence abuse because they have PTSD and trauma that's, that has a lot to do that's connected with the, the abuse that they've endured, yes. you know, it, you know, you don't, that ever, that never really ever extincts, you know. <laughs> we, we completely agree. It's even, what, a year and a half, two down the line, I'm still I still have moments of PTSD because in the nervous system, you can't control that. You can't control when you have like a real fight or flight moment, your body just takes over and, yeah. you know, maybe you never had to deal with that before, but now it's, now it is a very real, fully fledged PTSD, you know? Right. Right. It's, it's a real, it's a real thing now. And now, you know, even, even if you're not in the situation and it's thereafter, it's, it's that you know, reoccurrence of that trauma that can be triggered for no apparent reason. It can be just out of, it doesn't even have to be triggered. It just kind of comes over. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's very intense. Um, okay, so going back to the, the seeking help part of it, um, what would you say are some important steps that people who are still in that situation should consider? What are the first safety considerations? The, the one of the things that, that uh, one of the barriers for for seeking help is, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, we have a kind of a mentality of how domestic violence is supposed to look based on our our social media and our, our television shows, and mm -hmm. it really doesn't it really doesn't work that way, you know, right. what we see in like 
certain um, um, movies that have depicted domestic abuse. Um, for instance, we talked. We, I talked about the Jennifer um, Lopez um, movie um, that when she was she was in. I I can't remember the name of it actually, but um, it's like she calls the police and um, she's actually uh, they beaten him to the point where he is like deceased now and the police are there and the police look at her and say you're one of the lucky ones and that you know like like letting her go like with because they of her the, her abuse but that, that that's not realistic I mean obviously what would happen is she would be charged with murder and she would, go to, she would go to jail so I mean I mean so how how domestic violence is depicted it's not really in real life it's not really how it's really going down so that has to be out of the mindset of the person that's going through it like i should be probably bleeding if, if i'm not if i'm not bleeding or if i don't have bruises then i'm not must not be abused so right. Right. that is not that's not real that's there's many forms of abuse that doesn't that don't yeah. physically show up Absolutely. that are still that are still abused you know so that's one thing and that's one obstacle that has to get um, turned over to, for um, victims and survivors to realize this is this is abuse. Like I might not be like at death's door here, but I am experiencing abuse based on what's going on and how I'm physically feeling and how what's financially going down, how my children are being manipulated, like all that, uh, and and then some. Another thing that happens is you know a, along the side of um, having a domestic violence relationship. A lot of a lot of the victims felt very humiliated and embarrassed to come forward um, of, of wanting to seek help because they felt bad they felt badly that they were in that situation and they felt badly for themselves that they put they felt like they put themselves in that situation. You don't really know you don't really know that that's going to happen until. Absolutely. It happened until it happens, and it can happen to anyone. It doesn't matter right. how old, smart. how young, or smart, how yes. educated, how socioeconomic status you have. It does not discriminate. It Absolutely. could be. It could be anyone. So one of the things to kind of safeguard you is really knowing like what to look for when you're dating. Okay. Uh, a lot of a lot of women. Um, um, the, the, the one of the biggest faults that happens is relationships happen really fast. Yes. Like a really fast, rapid, met, met meet you, like you, go on a couple of dates, move in, you know, trauma bond at its finest. Yeah. <laughs> um, that is probably the biggest, the biggest, the biggest um, thing that women go through that because, you know, women want to have a relationship. They want little, they, you know, and they it's moving so fastly and they think that that's a good thing, you know, but it's not, it's right. not a good thing to have a fast relationship. You want to take your time. You want to take the time to get to know, you want to really get to know, you want to see it. I, I figure, I, I feel that the best way to know if your partner is right for you is see what a conflict feels like mm. when you, when you get into a conflict yes. with your partner, you will know if that partner is right for you. Absolutely. How they respond is 
very key. I completely agree with that. And I also- have, I have, I have, I have to tell you a personal story. Like I was say, I was dating my husband for about eight months, and we were still in this honeymoon phase. And I'm like, you know, this is we have not gotten one single argument. Something's wrong wow. here. So I, <laughs> so I intentionally picked a fight. <laughs> I did. I did. I intentionally picked a fight just to see. Just to oh, see, fair. right? You know how uh, what I was what I was working with, and the way the way he responded and the way he re, re, you know talked to me thereafter, uh, I felt like okay, this is this is something that I can work I can work with this like, That's awesome. and then yeah, and then we kind of broke that honeymoon phase and we started realizing that yeah, we it's okay to have disagreements, it's okay to have conflict, we don't have to have. We don't have to like, it doesn't have to be volatile. It doesn't have to be hostile or aggressive. It could be, it could, there is is such thing as productive conflict. Absolutely. It could just be a discussion on where the disconnect is and how to resolve that. It doesn't have to be violent. It doesn't have to be shameful or hurtful. Uh, There doesn't need to be foul language. None of that. Yeah. But when people, people don't understand it because when they think of conflict, Yes. They think, oh, oh God, you know, I don't want to be around that. I and they do everything to, to avoid it because they think conflict, they think bloodshed and you know, contention and arguing and yelling and screaming and shoving and all right. kinds of things. You know, uh, we think of conflict, we think of warfare, we think of all kinds of stuff, but doesn't conflict doesn't have to be like that. It, conflict really, I've learned in being in the in the department of conflict resolution and dispute analysis, the conflict is necessary. In order for change to ensue. Yes. Yes. And I think another thing too is probably how it was modeled as a Mm -hmm. child. Yes. Those uh, attachments growing up really shape how we view relationships. So if you grew up thinking that conflict had to be, oh, mom hits dad and that's normal. Mom is yelling, you know, dad is yelling at mom and that's normal. You don't, getting into a relationship when those things occur it's to you it's normalized you don't even think that oh this is not how people communicate yeah it becomes familiar and then you replicate that when one of the things that uh, a a very nuanced discovery that i uh, um, attained from the the research that i did is the the relationship between mother and daughter that relationship is has when i when i interviewed the survivors there was a very uh, uh detached emotional connection between mother and daughter mm. uh, in rearing in rearing and parenting and that that relationship and and again being modeled and possibly being a victim themselves as a mother they're seeing um, firsthand uh, victimization right in the forefront and you know how how you how you talk and how you argue and you're yelling and it, you know it does it does something to, to kids it does something to teens it makes them you know, they don't have, a lot of people don't have the defense mechanisms to know what to do with that um, emotional um, heightenedness. So it's, 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 it, pr- it, pr- it provokes a lot of anxiety. Absolutely. I completely agree. That mother-daughter dynamic too. <laughs> I know for my listeners, you guys are very familiar. You know that I've had a very tumultuous relationship with my mom in the past. So to me, that strikes a particular chord. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, when we, so we talk about the mother daughter dynamic, how does the father daughter dynamic play into that? You know, I, I, you would think 
you would think that the father died. I, that's what I felt. I felt like oh, I'm your daddy issues all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought that there were going to be some father daughter issues, but I didn't really. There was nothing. Oh, outstanding! Like poking out with in terms of saturation of data that had anything to do, you know, with with that. Um, so it was really, it was, it was really, mother. it was really the mother that it's the same sex parent, wow. you know. I mean, uh, again, an emotional detachment of mothering, physically there, physically, financially, babysitting, helping, you know, moving, whatever, but emotionally just absent. Hmm. and detached yes and and possibly a little narcissistic hmm. <laughs> so definitely um yeah i resonate yeah. with that as well um <laughs> so going back to real quick for our listeners benefit um you mentioned some red flags to look out for uh, i know moving in too quickly is definitely one of them um personally i experienced a lot of love bombing as well a lot of flashy gifts and um, things that just kind of make you feel like, oh, wow, this person is really making this extra effort and going all the way. Um, So I definitely went through that. Can Mm -hmm. you mention any other red flags that we should be looking out for? Yeah. um, Just, just, just the way your, your, your takeaway when, when, when he, when he or she, in terms of relationship is talking to you, like, how, how are you, like, the, the way in which they speak to you and the language that they use and not just, I'm not just talking about like their tone sure. or their, their, um, their volume in terms of voice fluctuation, but I'm also talking about the language and the content in which they talk to you in. That's very important because a lot of men can be very calm and still very, very, very demeaning. Mm, that's a great so, point. Thank you. Yeah, I think, I think really... And then you're feeling some way. And if you're feeling some way, then something is a woman, a woman's instinct, particularly a woman who was a, who was a mother, Mm. they have an instinct. They have a gut instinct. They know, they know when something's wrong. They have, they, a lot of people don't listen to that, um, but it's there and it has to be tapped into. And I think think the things that I see with women getting into new relationships is that fear of communicating that like they do have the gut instinct and they know it's there and instead of even just addressing it you know maybe not necessarily acting on it but just saying hey I feel like something's off uh I didn't like the way that you said that in a new relationship you're you're much more likely to just be like oh it was a one-time thing oh I really mm-hmm. like him I don't want to rock right the- right <laughs> right you 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 negate all those little there and they're little red flags. Like I yeah. often said, my, my dissertation chair said to me, Dr. McKay said to me, you know, you, Michelle, you're not gonna wake up and get punched in the face. It's not how it's, <laughs> it's not how it really works, you know. Yes. She was spot on about it. You know, what happens is a slow, natural progression of abuse that takes place starting small and maybe very discreet, it may be very, you know, um covert not overt covert underhandedly um that just naturally and organically just kind of progresses to a more heightened and more um aggressive state and and then you end up in a in a situation i completely agree that's yeah definitely something that women should pay attention to especially in this day and age i feel like it just gets worse and worse (laughs) 
Well, with with the with the pandemic that has taken place these past two years, the rise in, during the pandemic is there has been an absolute big rise in domestic abuse. There's been a big rise in alcoholism and drug use, and there's been a big rise in suicide. Wow. Yeah. Do you know? Um, would you happen to know off the top of your head the percentages roughly? I, I don't. I'd have. I'd have to. I, what I can do is I can research them. I'll do some academic research and get back to you on on those three areas of the. Of, I'd love but to I know, know those those three areas, um, are, are are the heightened areas right now, and they have been since the duration of this. Yeah, I. I went through the height of my abuse right at the beginning of the pandemic, and it was very much so just that the panic of how is income going to come in? What are, you know, what are the next steps going to be? Or am I going to be able to see my family? Um, I can't leave my house. I'm with this person all the time. So I can completely see how being in that situation has amplified abuse for a lot of individuals. Oh, absolutely. Because there's no, 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 there's no escape. Yes. Yeah. There's no outside. There's no, there's no, there's no, way to get away from the when you're in your doors and in and home at home remotely Nobody knows. you know yeah you yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so let me ask you have you I know you've received a lot of feedback on your book uh from other professionals have you been reached out to by anyone who was in that situation um no but I have had I've been I've been um I've, I've, I've been on podcasts where um, I've had, you know, interviewers, you know, discuss the book and that's, you know, and our, it's, it becomes relatable. Yeah. 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 I, I haven't had, I, I haven't had a victim or a survivor reach out to me per se. Okay. Um, not, not per se, but a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, um, podcasters or interviews that I do, they, they do understand um, and have had their own personal experience. Now, I'm not somebody that has ever had a domestic abuse relationship. So this is all, this is not a bibliography. This right. is not something that I have endured myself. So getting this information, I really had to tear down any kind of ideology or biases that I might've had mm. and really just soak in and walk into the, the shoes of somebody who went some people, survivors that have been through this. So yeah. it was like to be a little bit more objective and less biased is, is, For sure. is key. Yeah. Well, it's awesome to hear that it's definitely getting traction and having an impact. And I hope that it continues to do so. Again, I know that I, it was published recently. So <laughs> I, I hope so too, because right now, I mean, right now is probably going to be a pivotal time for it yes. to be in people's hands, um, just just and even even with even with the providers um, that are helping and the informal supports that are helping um, uh, those people that anybody who's because there's just there's a it, you know when a domestic survivor or a victim happens it affects it's like affects the whole you know wind chime it affects yeah. every it affects everybody they their abuse affects everything and everybody. Absolutely. It's a very so, huge ripple effect. Absolutely. It, it really is. It really is like you take one piece of the wind chime and you push it forward and everything kind of just becomes disarray. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I totally agree. Okay. Um, so I feel like we have covered the book pretty thoroughly for any of my listeners that want to order this there is, it is on Amazon. I'll make sure to include the link uh, in the show notes. 
Um, so what's next for you? What's, what do you feel like the next steps in your career are? That's um, right now it's um, in the works. Uh, there's nothing definite right now. I'm trying to get some things up and running. Um, there's a couple, there's a couple contracts I have to sign in terms of co business collaborations. There is possible um, working together with other people like yourself. <laughs> yes, fingers crossed. I'm so excited. Yes. Um, and, and, you know, my goal really this year is to publish again. It really is. It really is to publish again. And, you know, I have a proposal out there that I don't want to get into, but I have it, I have it set, but uh, I just have to find the right fit for me in terms of public publications and, you know, We'll, we'll have to see it's it's a it's a it's a oh a, a wait and a wait and learn kind of process perfect well i'm very excited for your next book to come out i will definitely thank you. Be getting that thank you so much i appreciate it <laughs> all right guys that brings our show to a close um this was so awesome thank you again for coming on the show and talking about this with me thank you so much for having me inviting me and meeting you it was awesome to meet you in person Yes, that was a great idea. Shout out to my boyfriend for suggesting that I meet you yes. in Miami. <laughs> it was, it was a great fanta group. Fantastic, yes. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so listeners, you know the drill. Um, if you guys have any questions for me or you want to contact me, you know you can reach out to me via email. The email is natasha at brightsoulhealing.com. I am also on social media and you can visit my website, www.brightsoulhealing.com. I will also be sure to include all of that information, website, social media, and the book link for Dr. Finneran. And all right. Thank you guys so much. Enjoy your day. Thank you guys.